Hello, and welcome to Essential Alchemy. Alchemy is defined as a power of process that changes or transforms something in a mysterious or impressive way. My hope is that the information in this podcast can help you transform your mood, your energy, your physical health, or even help connect some dots and help you shift your mental and emotional state. I'm your host, Jody Cohn, a best-selling author, award-winning journalist, functional practitioner, lifelong learner, and founder of Vibrant Blue Oils, a company that sells proprietary blends of alchemical essential oil remedies designed to return you to optimal mental, physical, and emotional balance. You can find out more about me and my company at vibrantblueoils.com. And with that, let's get started with today's episode. I am your host, Jody Cohen, and today's guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, is a board-certified neurologist, five-time New York Times bestselling author, and he serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. And I'm really excited to be talking about some of the topics he's covering in his new book, Brainwash, specifically this idea of disconnection syndrome. Can you please speak to that? Certainly. So... It actually is a bit of an encompassing term. We take it from, you know, the brain physiology meaning all the way to the societal meaning of that term of being disconnected. And let's start small and then we'll generalize. Uh, from the brain perspective, early on in the book, we described two very important areas. One uh, called the amygdala. And this is a, a primitive brain center that's involved in things like impulsivity and you know, making a decision just impulsively. Uh, self-centeredness, narcissism, um, anger, fear, tribalism, in contrast to another area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that sits up behind your forehead. And this is a really uh, a human attribute, at least having such a large prefrontal cortex. And that's an area of the brain that is involved in things like planning for the future, uh, thinking about our decisions in terms of how they're going to play out, what will their consequences be for us, for our neighbors, for others, uh, empathy, how we feel towards our future selves, how we feel towards others, how we, how we care for the planet. And importantly, this adult in the room, this prefrontal cortex exercises control over the other area, over the amygdala. So it calms down impulsivity. It calms down the sense of I'm right and you're wrong. And that connection is so incredibly valued for exactly that reason. And what we've identified is that so many features of our modern lives are disconnecting us from this prefrontal cortex, disconnecting us from thinking about tomorrow, thinking about other people, thinking about our planet, thinking about our future selves. And, um, that is, at least from the brain perspective, what disconnection syndrome is all about. We've come to realize in uh, our modern world of being told to socially distance uh, that uh, we need to still be very much connected to other people. We are social beings. Yes. Our health absolutely uh, is, is influenced by the degree of social connectiveness that we experience. What is our social capital? How do we measure that? And that social isolation is indeed a, a very common, especially in urban environments, 
is associated with risk for some really bad other issues like cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, weight gain, uh, coronary artery disease, to name just a few. So our health depends on our ability and our efforts to interact with other human beings uh, in the best way that we can. And that when we become more locked into the amygdala, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about how we do that, uh, we become more isolated and that has health consequences. And, you know, these days we're seeing anger and self-interest and lack of empathy uh, being played out on a global scale uh, mm -hmm. like never before. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing that you bring up is this idea of safety. And when your amygdala is kind of running the show and making you feel unsafe, that throws off your parasympathetic system and your vagus nerve. Can you speak to that a little bit and the impacts of health? Well, absolutely. So this constant fanning of the flames of fear and anger that is part of our world, but we don't have to choose to make it part of our world, but by and large, based upon what we see on the evening news or th for those who's, who are on the news 24 seven, watching you know, their social media, watching their news feeds on their computers, uh, this continues to enhance our connection just to this fear area of the brain, the amygdala, and uh, powerfully augments our sense of being stressed. And this stress that we experience because people, we, we know that the world is out to get us, you know, mm -hmm. the fear that's instilled in us enhances our, our a stress response. So our levels of, for example, cortisol, mm -hmm. stress hormone cortisol go up and that has profound consequences on us. It leads to things like uh, being able to uh, deal with sugar appropriately, it compromises our immune systems uh, and enhances fundamentally something called inflammation. Inflammation is the cornerstone of, you know, all of our dreaded uh, chronic diseases. It, inflammation further threatens our connection to the prefrontal cortex uh, and ultimately leads to worse decision-making, which means that we'll not get to bed on time, we'll not eat the right foods, uh, we'll not get exercise, get out in nature, do our meditation and all those things that continue to connect us only to the amygdala away from the prefrontal cortex, what happens? Our decision-making declines even further, uh, degrades so that we still, we make worse food choices, less good choices as it relates to our sleep hygiene. And we create a situation uh, where we develop these chronic degenerative conditions. Now, we wrote this book uh, and published it in mid-January of 2020, prior to what's happened since. Uh, simply saying that our lifestyle choices affect our immune systems. Yes, yes. And now we know that uh, our immune systems are front and center. Everything is being talked about, you know, about immunity. I want to have a good immune system. And, and in addition, we're all acutely aware that unrestricted inflammation kills people in the context of COVID-19. So this, uh, the, this idea and these recommendations that they become far more meaningful these days in the context of the world in which we live. 
Yeah, and I love how you as a neurologist kind of brought in how the brain and what's happening in the brain can impact the body, the gut, the blood sugar regulation. And you landed on inflammation as being one of the things that can kind of compromise the communication between the amygdala and the frontal cortex. Can you speak to some of the other things that, that can kind of throw off that balance? Well, let's just stay with inflammation because there's one other, I think, really important mechanism that we, and it's a bit technical, but let me shorten it by saying <clears throat> inflammation threatens our ability to have adequate amounts of serotonin. Leave it at that. Uh, it's for those of your uh, viewers who are into this, it's, we're talking about the kynurenic pathway. And we're talking about the metabolism of tryptophan into serotonin, but basically inflammation leads to less serotonin. And that inflammation can be caused by not getting enough sleep, uh, not eating anti-inflammatory foods, but eating foods that increase inflammation like ultra-processed foods and foods with refined carbohydrates. Uh, just those two things, not getting enough sleep and eating a, a, a crummy diet, amps up inflammation that threatens your connection to the prefrontal cortex and threatens the availability of serotonin for your brain. No wonder uh, people who don't get enough sleep have a much higher risk of uh, things like depression. Uh, no wonder there is this correlation between uh, weight gain and depression. You're gaining weight because you're eating high refined carbohydrate food. So everything starts to come together uh, and we begin to understand that we had you know, some understanding of a mechanism here with respect to diet and the gut organisms and gut leakiness and inflammation. And then we had some information over here that mm, depression is an inflammatory disorder because inflammation markers are elevated across the board. And now these come together where we can relate the gut to inflammation, to depression, and we can relate nutrition to the gut, to gut permeability and inflammation. It allows us to say, you know, it turns out that the food we eat can affect our mood. The food that we eat affects how we see the world around us. Take that in the context of the globalization of the Western diet, that our Western diet of highly processed, higher carbohydrate, high simple car carbohydrate foods is spreading around the globe and that this diet amps up inflammation. The cornerstone of all these degenerative conditions and the cornerstone of depression and that inflammation locks us into a mentality that creates a sense of fear, that creates a sense of us versus them, of thinking mm -hmm. only about myself and not about no others. It compromises our ability to express empathy. That relates the globalization of our Western diet to a lot of what we're seeing happening in the world today with fear, with tribalism, with you know, excluding others from this or that, of us versus them mentality, simply from the change that's happened to our diet, unlike anything humans have ever experienced uh, on the, you know, the entire hundreds of thousands of years that we've been on the planet. Yes, and I'm very grateful between Grain, Grain Brain and this book, you give a lot of great recipes to help kind of calm inflammation through diet. You also offer a lot of other really thoughtful suggestions. 
can you speak a little bit to um, how to change the brain circuitry and restore and rewire a healthy balance of communication? Sure. So, you know, as it relates to disconnection syndrome, there are many, many on-ramps. You know, we listed in the book eight areas and we went into them at, at length, whether it's limiting your time uh, in front of your computer screen, getting enough, enough sleep, reestablishing relationship with nature, obviously exercise, obviously diet, meditation, etc. And I think, you know, for, for our time together, I'd focus on a couple of these ideas. And uh, oddly enough, what may be surprising to, um, to many of your viewers who are looking for the secret sauce, turns out that one of the biggest players for reestablishing connection to the prefrontal cortex, back to the part of the brain that balances the person, reduces the tribalism, increases the empathy, helps make better choices so that our immune systems will work better, is getting a good night's sleep. Who knew? Who knew that something that we should do for a third of our lifetimes? You know, we talk about exercise and diet. We don't exercise eight hours a day or we're not eating eight hours a day, but we should be sleeping seven to eight hours a day. But it's not just being in bed asleep for that length of time. We do need to think about the quality of our sleep. And, you know, we live in a time where wearable devices are very common that can give us that information in terms of how long does it take to fall asleep? How much time did you spend in REM sleep and deep sleep? Uh, how was your heart rate during sleep? Did you awaken that you don't remember? Did you, you know, how many times do you wake up in the middle of the night? And what was your total time asleep last night? And she was that technology doesn't require that you go to a sleep laboratory anymore and have a, what's called a polysomnogram. So very important. And so we not only emphasize how dreadfully important it is to get enough restorative sleep, uh, but then what you can do uh, to improve your sleep if it's not where you want it to be. And recognize that the research we described in the book shows that even one night of non-restorative sleep is associated with a 60% increased activity in the amygdala. Why do you suppose it is if you're up all night for whatever reason, that very next day you make very bad food choices? Those choices are impulsive. They're not based upon what you darn well know is good for you. It's going to be the glazed donut and a coffee. I mean, face it, doesn't that sound really good? Well, it may not sound good to you right now, but if you were up all night, all night, it's going to look a lot better. Right. So what do we do? Well, we um, recommend not having caffeine after 2 p.m. Simple enough, right? Right. Uh, we recommend turning off our digital devices by dinner time, so that we're not exposed to the blue light that these devices are emitting that can compromise our sleep because it reduces melatonin. Uh, looking at things like making your room quieter, more quiet, reducing sound, a couple of degrees cooler, believe it or not, uh, darker. Thinking about uh, if you're sleeping, uh, if there's somebody in your bed, might they have uh, leg movements at night? We call them these periodic leg movements that may be wake awakening you. Or that person may know darn well that he or she doesn't sleep well because and they need sleep. Uh, they, they have sleep apnea and they're using CPAP or whatever it may be. You need your sleep. So does yes. it mean maybe you put a pillow between you? Maybe it means now twin beds instead of one king. Uh, maybe it means another room. Uh, in the <laughs> end, you've got to get a good night's sleep. So yes. I'm not trying to distance people 
uh, you know, and, and, and be and break people up. I'm, I'm talking about the value of sleep in reestablishing your brain's connection uh, to the prefrontal cortex and, cortex and allowing you to dramatically reduce your risk for some really bad uh, health outcomes. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said for those biological rhythms, the circadian rhythms and how that ties to the digestive rhythm and even the kind of normal balance of communication in the brain. Well, that's right. I mean, we have lived in uh, a powerful relationship uh, with the cycles of, of our environment. We call this chronobiology in terms of uh, when we slept, when we were awake, uh, when, you know, the timing of our, our food consumption, our activities. And, you know, for virtually, virtually the entire time we've lived on this planet, we would go to sleep when it was dark and we yes. would wake up when it was light. Uh, now, you know, that doesn't happen. And all sorts of parts of our physiology are based upon that diurnal cycle and that uh, you know, now we see that we're becoming out of sync with, uh, with that part of our biology by eating uh, later at night uh, and going to sleep when we shouldn't, you know, later at night. And uh, it, it really uh, sets the stage for the manifestation of a lot of issues, uh, not the least of which is, you know, difficulties with glucose uh, metabolism and increased glucose, increased glu- uh, insulin resistance, very strongly right. correlated with many parts of that dyssynchronous uh, lifestyle. So, yes. you know, books have been written about that. Dr. Sachin Panda wrote a wonderful book about this whole notion of chronobiology and timing of our, our meals and timing of our sleep, etc. Well, and I love that you talked about forest bathing and time in nature, because I think when you align with nature, that helps reset your natural biological clock. Well, that's for sure. I mean, again, for virtually all of our time on this planet, we were intimately relating to nature and our bodies are signaled by what we experience in nature, by various scents that we uh, experience in the forest, certainly by the, the, the day-night cycle that we are intimately involved with when we're in nature, the calming uh, nature of nature. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, that was, that's our, our history. That's our legacy as well. And um, so lots is written uh, of this relationship to the extent that an intervention uh, using nature is something that's now being described. A lot of that work coming out of Japan, they call it a shown Riku, where they uh, known as uh, forest bathing, as you characterized. And you know, it's not as if everybody has, uh, has access to a national forest and you don't need that. Uh, you know, ideally, if you could get to a place where there are some trees, even in an urban environment, yeah. the research shows Central that that is cortical. <laughs> yes, and if exactly. you can't even get out of your house for whatever reason, just a potted plant in your kitchen or dining or living room, whatever it may be. And if you don't have the green thumb and don't want to have plants in your house, even a photograph of nature has been shown to calm the amygdala and to lead to less impulsive response. So, you know, it, that's very valuable and it's not in a prescription form. And, it, you know, it, it has great play in terms of allowing us to reconnect. Yeah, and I, I feel like part of that is the amygdala puts us in that sympathetic fight or flight state and 
the hypo or the prefrontal cortex kind of helps calm us down. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. So, um, you know, when we're living off, uh, and let me just go, retract for one second or go back. There's an upside to the amygdala. That's for sure. The amygdala allows instantaneous response. Yes. Uh, which is a good thing at times, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, you put your foot on the brake because a kid was in your rearview mirror on a tricycle and you didn't think about that. It wasn't, you know, this might well be a good thing for me to go ahead and take my foot off the accelerator and shift it over to the brake because there's a kid. By the time you've done that, you've got problems. So there is a great place for this instantaneous response. That's the role of the amygdala and that's can be life-saving. We need sometimes fight or flight, you know, that's a good thing, but not day in and day out. And yeah. uh, this day in and day out activation of our fear center of fight or flight does two things. Number one, it strengthens our connection to the amygdala at the cost of reducing our connection to the prefrontal cortex. And it does upset the balance then between the parasympathetic system, uh, which is involved in our day-to-day activities of digesting our food uh, and really the the maintenance work of our bodies and more of the sympathetic, sudden uh, fight or flight uh, kind of activity. We need both, uh, but when we weigh the sympathetic activity far more aggressively, uh, then it does tend to have negative consequences. That feeds into elevating cortisol. That damages the gut lining by changing the uh, array of organisms in the gut. When we damage the gut lining, that leaky gut, as it's been called, uh, augments the process of inflammation in our bodies. And that is something that we cannot let happen because chronic elevation of these inflammatory mediators is damaging to our DNA. It's damaging uh, to uh, various parts of the body and certainly to the immune system. It's associated with Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, you know, all of the chronic degenerative conditions that are increased in risk because we are constantly under stress. We're activating our sympathetic immune systems. And then those functions subserved by the parasympathetic nervous system may uh, not get the attention they need. For example, digestion. When we suddenly shunt blood away from the gut by activating the sympathetic nervous system, well, we need blood and we need gut motility to be happening to extract nutrients from our foods to have healthy digestion. When we constantly are bombarding our bodies with stress and shutting that system off, no wonder people have such uh, issues with respect to their, their guts these days. And interestingly enough, how profoundly correlative that is with depression. What a, mm-hmm. an interesting other sidelight on the so-called gut-brain connection. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I love how you kind of connect the amygdala with the sympathetic response and how you're talking about, you know, um, where, where you put your attention is where it grows. So if you're constantly in stress, that almost wires your brain neuroplasticity to become more stressed in the future. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it, it not almost wires your brain. It does rewire your brain. Right. So through this process of neuroplasticity, the more you're tapping into the amygdala, the stronger that connection becomes. That happens. Uh, and the core, uh, the opposite of that is the, 
The fact that when you're not using certain pathways, they tend to decline in their efficacy. In other words, when you're not connecting to the prefrontal cortex, this connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that normally would have calmed the amygdala down becomes less effective. And we can't have that. We need to reestablish that connection and then nurture it. Yes, it's like amygdala hijacked. It just kind of keeps running on its own, which is... Let the amygdala do your job. Your job is to alert us if we're in a uh, clearly a a threatening situation. But otherwise, we we need you to calm down now. Uh, You know, we need you not to be fearful day in and day out. And uh, sorry, amygdala, I'm sorry I've been bombarding you with news uh, from 24-7 exposure to TV and, and my screen. What does that do? That strengthens the amygdala's role. It says, look, things are really, really bad. And it amps up sympathetic activity, increases cortisol at the cost of the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. I mean, all the things that we're trying to avoid are happening by virtue of the choices that we make. We choose to fan the flames of uh, amygdala activity by watching news nonstop. Uh, by engaging in fear-based social media interaction. Kind of put that stuff aside, go out and walk in the forest for crying out loud. Exactly. We, we, that's the one thing I really want people to kind of land with in this. There's so much that's outside of our control, but we get to choose our own choices. And we get to make choices that can help us calm our amygdala and activate our frontal cortex and, and drop into parasympathetic state. And you have so many good suggestions. I, I love diet focus, sleep. Are there any other tools that you have found really helpful to help people? Meditation. Who knew? I mean, so meditation is a, a very rapid fire way of immediately calming uh, the sympathetic nervous system, letting the amygdala chill out and allowing parasympathetic activity, allowing the prefrontal cortex immediately to come online and do its thing. I mean, we can demonstrate that on uh, very sophisticated brain imaging studies. We actually showed them in the book. How meditation immediately lights up the prefrontal cortex, calms the amygdala, and the more you do it, the more indelible that becomes. And indeed it lasts through this process of neuroplasticity where we strengthen this connection. And it can be demonstrated that long after the time of meditation, uh, you remain connected to the prefrontal cortex. The world is less threatening. Immune system is better. Blood sugar control is better. Blood pressure is better. Uh, and it's free. I mean, so what is the, uh, what's the pushback? No, exactly. This is so timely and so helpful. Thank you so much for all of this amazing advice and these great tools to help people shift. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with uh, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex? Well, let me just take a step back in closing. And uh, I, I think the whole mission of our book and even our time together today, Jody, is the notion of self-empowerment. I love that. That you know, we tend to live in this world that would have us believe we should live our lives however we choose, moment to moment, and that when suddenly we develop a condition, there's a magic way of fixing it. And the reality is that's pretty far from the truth. And that we are the arbiters of our health destiny as it relates to these chronic conditions and to a significant degree in these times of this COVID-19 experience, that we have a lot 
to choose in terms of how we are going to uh, experience this infection. You know, it's been estimated that between 60 to 80% of the global population is going to become infected, meaning that, you know, likely we're going to be in that group. And so that happens. Well, exposed. We'll be yeah, exposed, right. but that, but how our body reacts, we have choices. And we can be the arbiters of that response based exactly. upon the lifestyle choices that we make right now. We know that people who are uh, have obesity or are significantly overweight, having diabetes, coronary disease, uh, coronary artery disease, other chronic degenerative problems, which are a manifestation of the lifestyle choices we made previously, those uh, issues speak to a worse outcome. That's clear. And it's not like, well, that's what I have. End of story. Too bad for me. No, we can choose right now to improve, for example, our blood sugars by being on a diet that's more uh, restricted in refined sugar. We can control our blood sugar by eating less sugar. Who knew? Yes. Uh, we can, uh, you know, engage in exercise, get a good night's sleep, all those things to work on those mechanisms that would otherwise have led to these diseases. Or if we already have one of those diseases, we can reduce their severity. You know, we, we now see the data that shows that you can cure type 2 diabetes with a ketogenic diet, for example. There is no medicine on planet Earth that cures type 2 diabetes. We have tons of medicine that will lower the blood sugar. When you watch television, they say, oh gosh, I lowered my A1C, aren't I special? But you can cure type 2 diabetes and get off medication, for example, by going on what's called a ketogenic diet. So what I would like to leave your viewers with is really the notion of empowerment. Love that. that. It's not good enough to uh, outsource your health destiny to others. That you know, we have the tools uh, today. We know the tools. We know the information. Of what we can be doing to reframe our future in terms of our health, and even in terms of what would happen should we become infected infected with uh, this virus. Mindset is so important and stepping out of victim and stepping into personal responsibility. And I think that's what brainwash is all about. It's really empowering people with very accessible tools to make a difference in their health immediately. And it can be as simple as looking at a photo of a plant. I mean, that's amazing. Who knew? You know, those are all offered up as on-ramps to reconnection, whether it's, again, reconnecting with nature, however that works for you. Uh, paying attention to your sleep, you know, maybe getting a wearable device and seeing where you are to start off with, then making changes and see how that impacts your sleep. Yeah, as a matter of fact, aerobic exercise is something we've all known is good for us, and it is. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, reconnecting to nature, changing our diets, uh, and reconnecting with other people, very important. We need that. Loneliness is a powerful risk factor for illness. And uh, uh, finally, I think uh, working on tools to increase our empathy, keeping yes. a gratitude journal, uh, saying to others, thank you for what you did, apologizing to others. All of these things reconnect our, our hearts in a figurative way uh, to, to others and to ourselves. And that will strengthen our connection to those good parts of the brain. That is so helpful and so amazing and so timely. Thank you for everything you do. Oh you my are gosh, such- thank you. This, this was amazing. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening. I hope this podcast empowered you with some useful information and takeaways. If you like this episode, please consider sharing a positive review and consider subscribing. I would also love to offer you my free parasympathetic toolkit as a gift just for listening. It will teach you how to activate the most important nerve in your body to turn on your ability to heal. This free toolkit includes a checklist, a video, and a detailed guide. If this podcast prompted any questions, you can always find answers on my blog at Vibrant Blue Oils or in my book, Essential Oils to Boost the Brain and Heal the Body. Until next time, wishing you vibrant health.